Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer, and I will be your host. Jeppe Hansgaard, welcome to Diplomacy the podcast dedicated to communications in mergers and acquisitions. Jeppe, you're the founder and CEO of InnoVisor, and you have been going through a number of change projects and developments. Very pleased to have you on board this morning with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Jeppe, let me start with my first question. How or... Who or what has made the person you are today? Oh, there are actually two questions in that one, right? Who or what? <laughs> and I can tell you the what part. I do think it's from my private life. When I was four, my, my dad brought me to the track and field stadium. I'm very much into the track and field. I'm like the third generation of track and field uh, in, in my uh, family. And I've also brought my kids into it, right? But for me, I've learned a lot from being part of a track and field community, how you need to be disciplined, how you need to, to train, but also how you need to be part of a community if you want to be really, really good. And then and, and that's actually something that I applied to InnoVice as well, that learning of how constantly to look for the millimeters or the centimeters or whatever to become even better. It's an annoying Habit, I guess, sometimes for my colleagues, but it it really means that that we always look for how can we become better. And the who is maybe an even more important story. When I was in seventh grade, I switched schools. I was kind of like the, the the type of person that needed a switch if I really needed to become something. Otherwise, I would probably just live in it. But I had a Danish teacher who saw me and kind of embraced me as a person. And I do know that if it wasn't for him. I would not have been in the position I am in today. And I think that's an important learning itself that I that I kind of, when I realized, I, I made sure to thank him for, for the difference he had made in my life. And I can only recommend doing that to every other person. I mean, think about who has made you the person you are and then thank them. This is a perfect introduction, Jeppe, to one of the fields where you have been pioneering, which is the organizational network and organizational network analysis. So the people around us, the people that influence, the people who do, who pull or who push, how would you define the organization network that you have approached and, and how has it impacted the work that you do? Yes, so the way I got into organization network analysis was actually I was working way back. I worked with supply chain optimization. The supply chain to look at how can you move goods from one place in the world to another, actually all the way out to the stores with T-shirts on hangers, with barcodes and, and stuff like that, right? And and when you've got like 800 vendors in the Far East uh, shipping uh, T-shirts to uh, to Europe, right? That is a pretty complex supply chain where you constantly look for how can you optimize down to the cent that movement, right? So it's about hops and, and, and so forth. And it, in essence, it's a complex network. I used to work with that, and that's it. Uh, very uh, complex mathematics, I can tell you how you do this. Then I moved into becoming a change management consultant. And I couldn't really kind of get this people thing. I was always seeing 
people that were not on the, visible in the old charts somehow influencing how we succeeded, right? People that nobody talked about, but they still had this enormous informal influence, or they were the bottlenecks for decisions or whatever, right? But they were not in the formal structures really visible. So, and then in, in, in 2005, I was attending a, a masterclass in London, the three-day masterclass. And that I suddenly got introduced to network analysis was really this visual of first the org chart. The second visual was of how people were connected to each other, which was totally different, right? How the work really got done, how some people were actually much more important than, than you could actually see in the org chart. And when I saw that, and it kind of resembled what I knew from the supply chain networks, that's where I got sold on network analysis. And then since 2005, I've been working with uh, with these informal connections. I mean, so who gives who gives the people in the organization energy, or who do they go to for help and advice, or who do they go to stretch the thinking or whatever? Because if you understand those parts, then suddenly you can drive change in a, in a much more successful way. Is that the basis then for change? So when we when we go into into the big announcements in mergers and acquisitions, we do see change coming with the email or the video from the CEO, whatever we see as the news comes. So what makes change so difficult then? Is that people or is that process? I think it's the, to, to me, it's the people. So one of the things that we have actually discovered over the years is if we can find the right 3% of the people, we're actually, actually filtering out the leadership level here. If we can find the right 3% of the people, they shape the, the perceptions and the commitment of about up to 90% of their colleagues. It's something we call the 3% rule. And the reason why we call it the rule is it's, it's not exactly 3%. It's between probably 2.8 or 2.9 or 3.1 or 3.2. There's always somewhere in between. And if you don't get those people on board, right, then you will fail because their perceptions of everything is, is almost like magnetism. So if they're negative around what you're trying to achieve, they will drag everyone else with them in a downward direction. One of the ways I often describe this dynamic, and then I'm not sure if you have a piece of paper in front of you, but I described this in a two-by-two two where I say, so if you have the formal structures, the informal structures, or formal, informal, structured, unstructured, that's a two-by-two two quadrant, right? In the upper left quadrant, you would then have the formal structures. That's where the top leaders make that announcement, an announcement you just said, so that email telling us, now we're merging. We want to merge because we have these synergies we want to realize. And that's all good. <laughs> you should keep on doing that. I mean, you, you have to make the announcement. Then below that, in the formal unstructured quarter, that's where the leaders have to role model what they have just communicated, right? They need to, to role model that they actually see the synergies, that they want to work together on this. And so also extremely important. They cannot just stay in the corner office. Then you got the upper right corner, which is where the, the informal influencers become important, the 3%, right? Because up there, they have the influence. And, and what you really need to do is, when you've had the announcement, make sure you listen to them. Listen to their concerns. Listen to what they think about it. Make sure you address it. I mean, it's really listen, listen, listen. See if you can engage them in these activities. I mean, the best thing you can do is actually co-create activities with them in the first phases here and make them insiders. Turn them into insiders because if you turn them into insiders, they will speak your case at the water cooler. 
Now I know we are not all of us attending an office anymore with a water cooler, but then it's in the in the chat function on Teams, right? But they will speak your case, and that is important because everybody else in the organization. So now we're talking about the ninety percent, right? They're trying to make sense of what is going on. They're trying to make sense of what they read in that message from the CEO or from how their leaders are role modeling uh, the change. But above all, they talk to the people they trust, which are their peers. And so 3%. And if all of that makes sense, that's where they start to support the, the transformation of the merchant. How do you identify those 3% or what are the, the common denominators of, of those? Do they have something in common because they might be very different? <laughs> I don't it's, know. It's one, of those, it's one of those questions I always get because somehow people think, okay, if I now go through a training program, then I can become one of the most influential people. Yeah, so what are the characteristics? I, it's easier to tell you what it's not. Also, because people have that perception that an influencer, uh, informal influencer, is probably very outspoken, very extrovert, it's probably a very tenured person, and is probably one of the high performers. And I can just say it, it's a no in all three cases. We see an overrepresentation of introverts, and I'm thinking that makes a lot of sense because if you have something you want to discuss, something you you don't really know how things are going, right? You want to talk to someone who really listens. And listens. And that is not just kind of waiting for you to pause a single second before they come with their answer. Right? You really want to talk to someone who reflects on what you're saying. So, so there is no representation of introverts. And, and, and we've seen that all over time. Regarding the tenure, tenure seldomly crosses uh, tenure bands, if you understand what I mean. So the people that have the most influence on you are actually the people you have joined the company together with. Because you kind of have shared experiences over time, right? probably have been going through the same onboarding programs or you've been uh, eating lunch together and felt more safe to talk to colleagues you joined with because they were at the same level as you, right? So so influence travels within tenure bands. Yeah, and then, of course, you've got hierarchy. Uh, hierarchy has an impact. Location has an impact. And then there's actually one more thing, which is fun for M&As, and that is if you have been acquired by an outsider before, then there's nothing that really will glue you together as that experience, right? If you become acquired by an outsider, then suddenly your networks go like this. You you cluster together. You meet each other in the canteen and you make sure you you eat together and you're not to each other already also 10 years later, right? Because you have been going through that experience. In the reactions to change and in the reactions to M&A, in one of the pieces of research that has been looking into how the success follows. They, we all know M&A doesn't bring the expected results, so why do we continue doing it? So there is this piece of research from the Synergy Solution that says basically the first reaction is significant on the future outcome. We see this in crisis communications, very similar. So first reactions do determine how things are. Is that something you see in the reaction to change or how would you explain that? No, I, I do see that we have, we have identified, and I can come back to that later, six change bloggers, really, so so for successful change. And, and one of the bloggers is, is about that initial reaction. We go a bit further. We say there are two stakeholder groups that are really critical to look at for the initial reaction. One is the 3%, and the other one is the top leadership groups. If those two groups are negative with their initial reaction, then maybe you should rethink how you are doing your post-merger integration program because that is going to be a long and tough struggle. If one of them is more positive, 
then you can almost treat this as an early warning signal. Then people will also become more positive over time. But really, those two groups are the two core groups to look at. Interesting. So how do you make this assessment then of the now? Because, okay, at some stage you have to make the announcement on Monday morning or whatever yeah. it is. So we can always look at after the announcement, <laughs> what happened and how reactions are, are picked up. But how do you make a proper cultural assessment or situational assessment of, of how your organization is today? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, and there's no way around asking people. Don't think you know. Don't think the leaders know. You actually need to ask people. In the best cases, we've seen the company being acquired have actually made that cultural analysis beforehand and giving this as an input as part of the merger talks, right? But otherwise, you need to get into it afterwards. And you need to ask people, right? Because, again, I, I don't know who you influence by, and I will never know. There's only one person that actually knows, and that's you. I can guess, but there's actually only one person. And if we just understand that, that we don't know, then I think we already are. In your analysis, when you say we have two key stakeholders, so the 3% and top leadership, or the 3% yeah. influencers, let's put it this way, how important is diversity in there? Because the 3% in top leadership is very few people. <laughs> yes, and, and I, I love that question, right? And, and um, I, I'm probably one of those people that I think diversity in itself is not important. What is important is the representation. And when I look at representation, I'm, I'm looking again at the organization as a network, and I want to make sure that all the groups and cliques and so forth have representation. I'm not looking for the, the usual ways of looking at diversity, like we need to have a 50-50 gender split or nationality split or whatever. I think what we need is representation in the net, so network representation, that people feel that somebody that they are close to is represented in the works. And that somebody needs to be somewhere in their networks. I, I do want to say, though, that uh, in terms of diversity, you do want to make sure that you actually reflect on this in every single decision you take as you go through the M&A. Because if you don't, that bias you have, and everybody has biases, right? Uh, unconscious bias. Your unconscious bias will have an impact on your decisions when you make groups, when you put together new teams or whatever. So it is an important element to reflect on every single time you make any decision on people. That requires probably a high level of trust, because if you are with a sentiment of representativity so that you feel that somebody represents who you are, we're not about the statistical representativity that we're talking about, but that, that requires a strong organizational network, this trust that you can say, okay, that person, I know that that person will speak for me. Requires trust, I think. So, so it's, all, it's almost like the political system, right? So it's like if you have actually been able to have your voice in who should represent, so who should be the voice of whatever, the merger, right? Then you feel you have that representation. It's not about you yourself being represented. We know all of us, we cannot all be represented in this. But if I've been allowed to actually to point to someone that represents me, then, then I'm, I'm better off. You certainly have come across in your in your life and in your work across organizations that tell you that they have a change fatigue. 
So where there has been reorganization, readaptation, restructuring, re-everything. So what is a good structure for change? Should it, because at the same time we say, oh, we have to adapt permanently because the business and the world is changing so fast. We have to be in organizational excellence. So improve all the time. What is your look at that? I actually in a, I'm in an agreement that that the world is constantly changing and we and we've seen in the past three years right how it is constantly changing. So I think for me it is more about a bit more fluid thinking and strategies, right? So don't build everything into like a program with a start a fixed start date and a fixed end date. You need you need adaptability. You need to be able to directionize forward. At the same time, you need you need to track so you kind of have a feeling of okay, where are we going? And then based on that, you need to calibrate your decisions. I think it requires from the leadership, it, it, it really requires a different leadership. Uh, I call it leadership follow-through on the execution side. The leadership needs to be much more on top. They used to be able to launch a change program and then they would kind of step out of it and then they would uh, ask, so how are we doing one year later, right? They can't anymore. And I mean, uh, there's good research on this as well. What we have found is that the leaders that actually check in on change programs every two months are the ones that are that are doing best. The, the likelihood of a successful change program is much, much higher if there's leadership follow through in that way. That's actually one of those six change buckets we have identified, leaders not following through. How do you define success then of change? What have you seen or how do organizations define success in change? Yeah, so that's a good question again, right? So how do you define the end goal? And I don't think there is an end goal, but there's an end state, maybe. So, for example, if we talk about uh, mergers and acquisitions, right, what type of synergies is it that we want to have realized? And then, I mean, there can be many, right? We have worked with some some very large uh, organizations, and, and one of them recently was regarding uh, we want to acquire some capabilities that fits well with our portfolio of capabilities. And we want to acquire those capabilities because that will enable us to uh, sell more to our clients or become a better partner for our clients. That's a good objective, right? The issue is then, okay, so how do you make sure that those things happen at the people level, right? Because one thing is you have the capability, but if you want to be able to sell it to your existing clients and to new clients, right? then you actually need to make sure that those the capabilities known to your salespeople, for example, right? and that the salespeople actually understand that it's important to work with this. So it's about connecting people to people suddenly. And that's where I often see that things are kind of lacking, that extra level of dedication. Sometimes the, the M&A, they stop at the system integration, but you really need to make sure that the people can work together. That brings us to the question of knowledge. Because yeah. when you're talking about acquiring capabilities, that is know-how, yeah. that is knowledge, yeah. market-specific, technical, production, whatever it is. But you also mentioned sales. So that means you know what the market needs, what the market demands, what your customers, where they are going. How do you capture knowledge? How do you capture know-how? And how can you transfer it? Because we, we see all of those knowledge initiatives where somebody has to create a video and a book and a handbook and a template and an ISO standard. Yes, but we know that those who follow the standard 
it is, and especially in safety, an essential criteria, so it's not to be discussed. And at the same time, the real superiority is, is when you know how to bypass or to adapt and to innovate. So, yeah. so how do you merge that or how do you put that together? So one of the things we actually look for is the word of mouth. How can we map the word of mouth, basically? So if it is capability-driven, right? I would ask the people again, who do you consider the expert within this capability? Because that would give me kind of a, an impression of who it is, right? And I can tell you, in one case, we worked with this major technology company, 12,000 people or so, and we asked that question. They thought it was a person at corporate, right? So somebody at corporate that was really the person. But the thing was that when people asked across the desk, so who should I ask for help? Because I got this problem within artificial intelligence, right? People were pointing to somebody completely different. And why were they pointing to some completely different? Well, they were pointing to somebody completely different because that's what they had been he hearing about at the lunch table again, right? And then when somebody had an experience with talking to that person, they probably got their problem solved. And, and I think that is the, the key thing here, right? The word of mouth tells us where we should go when we need to solve a problem. We are not looking into the employee handbook or the processes or whatever, right? And typically, what we're looking for is something that is a bit more complex than what is stated in the capability library. So we look for help by asking our people in our network, who should we go to for help and advice? And then based on whatever they've learned over time, they take this decision based on their experiences and, and tell you, okay, I think you should talk to this person over here. Maybe that person is actually sitting in a completely different office, but I've heard that, that uh, he or she is the expert. And that's what people do. I sometimes compare it with Google, right? Because I think the thing is, if you have a problem, right, then you do a Google search and you see something on page page one. That's also what you do in the networks, right? Who do you know? That's page one. Page two, you're, you're getting to the ones that you know that they know. Page three, nobody goes to page three. So you never go to the, the further layer. And then that means if you have to go three layers out in your network, you have to reinvent or you will reinvent rather than going through the fuss. And probably the bias by the algorithm is the same. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, so, so, but I think that's that's what people do, right? We talk to people we know or people that are we know that are trusted by people we know. Impressive, uh, Jeppe. I, I like this conversation. Thank you for bringing all of those ideas up. I think if I summarize a little bit the discussion we have had, we started off with, with the organizational network and the work that is required to get that organizational network captured and understood. We then worked through the change and, and how change is driven, and that it is basically driven by a very small number of, of influences that we have within those networks. And ultimately, the knowledge, and, and I found that very interesting the way you look at it, because basically what you say is you're asking the word of mouth so basically, you're asking, again, a network of influencers who may be different from those from the change, but those who are the gatekeepers of, of knowledge, it's, again, an entity or individuals or a network of people who connect and who would say, oh, that's the person, that's the person who, who would know that. Yeah. So putting this down into, into the transformational process of mergers and acquisitions, where we always look at, at processes, at synergies, financial aspects, basically what you're telling us is that success is within people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, and I, I think that's important, really. When we look at M&A, right, we, uh, 
we often look for, okay, so first of all, who are the people we need to retain those capabilities, right? Because that's the reason why we made the acquisition. And then I'm sorry, but it's typically not the leaders, right? That possess those capabilities. They are hidden in those words of mouth, right? So we need to find them. The second thing we're looking for are those people that have that influence because we need to make sure that they are engaged and they can make sense of what is going on so they can tell their colleagues what is going on. And then the third group of people we often look for are what we call connectors. So if we want to bridge those two organizations now, right, build those synergies, who is it that we need to bring together in the rooms? Who is it that need to know or to understand each other's capabilities and, and kind of create sympathy for each other? Because that's where the connection happens, right? How do, how do we find the right people for that? So those are the three groupings of people that we're really looking for all the time. Hippos, this is fantastic. You have that probably somewhere in one of your articles or books that you have published. I love that. Thank you for joining us today. So people who um, connect, I think we have the opportunity to connect. Hopefully we influence a bit of our audience and demonstrated some of our capabilities. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jeppe, for joining us in this episode of Diplomacy and looking forward to seeing you next time when I'm up north. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website www.corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.